0: Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. Today we'll talk with Steve Gorlick of the Firebird Fund. Steve invests in Eastern Europe and Russia, and he'll have some ideas for us about how to do that. Amazing. In the mailbag today, not a whole lot. Good question about silver, and an interesting comment about Russian real estate. And remember, you can call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. For my opening rant this week, one key fact. I'll tell you what I mean in a second. That and more right now on the Stansbury Investor Hour. One key fact, what on earth could he possibly mean by that? What I mean is, I think there's a lot of noise out there right now. Everybody in a bear market wants to be a market technician and they want to try to predict a recession or not. They want to predict, in this case, you know, more inflation, less inflation, peak inflation, peak interest rates. You're just being bombarded with this stuff if you read all the usual sources, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Barron's, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's one key fact. You know, you you can't respond to all, you can't keep all the noise in your head and make a decision. You have to be selective. You have to decide which are the important facts and which are less important and which are pure noise. A lot of it's pure noise and in particular, the predictions, right? The recession prediction, you know, or uh, peak inflation predictions, or or even continued high inflation prediction, any kind of a prediction is generally speaking noise. I like to take my inspiration and my insights from history. History means a lot to me. And the one key fact, (laughs) If he'll get to it already, right, I'm going to get to it right now. The one key fact is that we've never gotten out of a massive bubble with a little six month, you know, 20 or 30% drawdown. That's it. That's the one key fact. And we've just been through an absolutely massive bubble, the everything bubble, in my opinion, the biggest bubble ever, bigger than 1929, bigger than 2000, bigger than 2007 really 2005 through 2007, right? Because housing peaked in around 2005 or was it 2006? Anyway, those are those were big bubbles. This one was bigger. You don't get out of this with, you know, six months minus 20, 30%, whatever, whichever index you're looking at, and then you're back off to the races making new highs. I don't think it works that way. And if you look at those previous bubbles, um, 1929 to 1932, Dow Jones Industrials were down 89% peak to trough. In 2000, the bubble in 2000 was really in the tech stocks. Other stocks fell, right? The S&P 500 fell, but it it fell something like, what, 49% or something like that, or 50, uh, I forget. It was 49, 50%, something like that. But the NASDAQ fell 78%. Right, and in two thousand seven, two thousand nine, S and P five hundred fell around forty nine percent. So, you know, if you, I don't want to. It's sloppy to take a simple average of all that, right? Um, If you did, it's a big ugly number that's far south of where we are now. Uh, And given that it was an everything bubble, and it was a, a a massive growth stock bubble that we just lived through right the nasdaq was the place to be right big large cap growthy tech stocks that was the place to be and even you know like lots of speculative tech garbage right the i keep referencing the arc innovation fund because it was a convenient a convenient repository for a lot of that garbage um and it's been crushed I think it may yet wind up being down eighty or ninety percent when this is all over, and you know a lot of the companies in it I don't think will exist. So we're in early days. You recall in an earlier podcast we noted that bear market rallies tend to be smaller in the beginning, larger toward the end, right? So we, we've seen small rallies, right? Little seven, ten percent kind of blips. Um so far. And that tells me we're early days. And history suggests that we're not going to get out of this without a big, nasty, extended bear market of of more than a year, something like 18 months, two years, something like that. Am I predicting that? <laughs> sort of. If I am, I, I should just cop to it. I should just admit it. I should stop saying, you know, I never make predictions. What I like to think about myself is that I am a bottom up value investor who simply cannot ignore the importance of cycles. What have I said over and over again? 90% of the time, 95, 98, who knows, 99. I haven't really done the arithmetic on it, but just ballpark, right? Most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, I don't care about the big indexes. I don't care what the overall market looks like. I don't care about the level of speculation in the economy and in the markets. But when they reach extreme highs or extreme lows, then I start to get interested. At the extreme lows, I'm looking around thinking, wow, let me find something that's really beat up that nobody wants to own, that is viewed almost as a distressed business, maybe something really really viewed as toxic that's super cheap that I think is a great deal and at the top and when when the valuation extremes go way way up and hit an extreme high that's when I want to look around and say mm, okay stocks in general are really risky now you know the S&P 500 your S&P 500 index fund is really risky now and I'm saying now because like I said You don't get out of this kind of thing with a six-month drawdown, you know, 20%, 30%, whatever it's been, depending on the index you're looking at. So so that's my one key fact. I don't think we're done with this. I think it's uh, not half over. I think it's probably a third to a fourth over. And that means you better be careful what you're buying. I did note um, a really... I saw a really good note from the folks at Alhambra Investments um, noting that just by the numbers, growth stocks are still really expensive and value stocks are, depending on what measure you look at, relative to growth, they're really dirt cheap. But Alhambra's point was that you know, if you just look at the headline PE ratios of the value funds, they're actually about fairly valued. They're not overvalued and the risk is much lower. That was his real point. He was, he was investing in, he wanted low risk, right? And he sees the growth stocks are still high risk and value stocks are lower risk. Um, I, I tend to agree with the overall point and relative to growth, of course, value stocks are super dirt cheap, still scraping all time multi-decade lows. So And commodities, same thing. And his message was same as mine. Commodities are probably due for a greater correction. They're extremely volatile. But through the cycle, through the through the bear market cycle, from the peak of the bull to the trough of the bear, commodities tend to perform very well if you can handle the volatility. So, but I want to end on my one key fact, right? We never get out of this kind of thing with a mere six-month minus 20, 30% drawdown. I think you should keep that in mind. I'm keeping that in mind, and that's how I'm I'm framing every bit of advice that I give to extreme value readers um, with that one key fact in mind. So I'll leave you with that. And now I want to talk with Steve Gorlick. Steve Gorlick, is, uh, he's a fund manager for Firebird, and he invests in Eastern Europe and Russia. And he also runs a U.S. fund, too. Very interesting guy. Can't wait to talk with him. Let's do that right now. The 20th Annual Stansberry Research Conference is coming up. I'll be there, but will you? This is by far my single favorite event of the year. The biggest and brightest financial minds will be in Boston for two days of ideas and actionable stock recommendations covering cryptos, big tech, precious metals, real estate, gold, and so much more. As usual, I'll be presenting as well as mingling with subscribers at lunches and dinners, These conferences are truly the most unique sort of business mixed with pleasure industry events out there. In this volatile, confusing, difficult market we're in, you'd be smart to talk to other like-minded investors and hear all the stock picks and all the ideas. Just one successful idea shared on stage could pay for your whole ticket and then some. And if you're not up for a trip to Boston this year, okay, we've got a discounted live stream option. Same brilliant presentations from the comfort of your own home. Go to FerrisStansburyBoston.com for all the details, including the speaker lineup, past conference stock winners, hotel pictures, and how you can get your free $1,000 gift just for signing up. Again, that's FerrisStansburyBoston.com. Be sure and register while they still have tickets left. I look forward to seeing you in Boston. All right, it's time for our interview once again. Today's guest is Steve Gorlick. Steve Gorlick is the lead fund manager of Firebird U.S. Value Fund, as well as portfolio manager of Firebird's Eastern Europe and Russia funds. We might have a little something to talk about there. He joined Firebird in 2005 from Columbia Business School, where he completed the highly selective value investing program. Prior to business school, Steve was an operational strategy consultant at Deloitte, working with companies in various industries, including banking, healthcare, and retail. Steve, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on.
1: Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Yeah. So just for our listener, um, Steve and I uh, see each other once a year up in Bale, Colorado, and um, I don't know why I haven't had him on the show until now. What an oversight. So Steve, I'd love to hear about um, you know a little bit of background about you, but it's really hard for me to To be patient and not ask, what in the world are you doing with uh, Eastern European and Russian portfolios these days? (laughs) I mean, it's got to be insanely difficult, right?
1: Uh, Right. So I'll be very quick about the background, just that will give us more time to speak about the things that are truly more interesting. (laughs) Um, As you mentioned, I've been with Firebird, uh, my current company, for over 15 years. Prior to that, originally I'm from Belarus. Uh, This is where interest in Eastern Europe has come from. I've always been interested in uh, investing, kind of got really excited when I learned that there's a firm in New York that invests in Eastern Europe that has a value bent to it. I kept calling them until they picked up the phone and have been there ever since. And it's been a long time at this point. Some of my background is in operational strategy, which I think is quite relevant in investing, because especially our type of investing, because what we try to do is, in, independent of what market it is, either Eastern Europe or US, we try to understand how companies make money and how companies spend money. And that's really the basis of our investment approach. And uh, we feel that that part is translatable. What The part that is not necessarily translatable is almost 30 years that our firm has of investing experience in Eastern Europe. And that's one of the reasons why we don't do other emerging markets as a firm. We do Eastern Europe, we do US. But in the 30 years, we learned that chances are, if you're looking at a company that is really cheap, there's a good reason for it. And if something is too cheap to be true, it probably is. Over the years, we've learned enough and talked to enough people. And even though we don't have People on the ground in Eastern Europe, we visit it often enough, and we have the relationships that allow us to kind of understand, to know the players behind the companies, but also allowed us to really see how these companies have developed over the years and how the businesses learned to be capitalist. Over the 30 years that we've been doing business, because if you go back to the history, what's different about Eastern Europe from other emerging markets, from most of other emerging markets, is that you had a period of about 70 years, a little more, where you had a completely different economic system, which had nothing to do with things like return on invested capital. You did not have revenue goals. You had goal in number of widgets if you were a company. And if you produced a certain number of widgets, you hit it. It doesn't matter if anybody's going to buy them. So it takes time to learn how to do things differently. And we've seen our region really evolve and develop. And companies, some of the better companies that we find in the region, how some of the better companies that we invested in, have developed and really into world-class companies. That, And we loved seeing that.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that somebody, considering the night and day difference between the incentives under the two different systems, it is amazing that a company could however long it would take them, even if it takes them 10 years, I mean, most of them just don't do it very well, right? Most of them don't make the transition very well, correct? True, uh, there was a there
1: was a couple of catalysts that we've seen that led to that education. The first one was the 2008 crisis. And to the extent that crisis was a big thing in US, it was huge in uh, the markets that we invest in. Um, For example, in the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, those countries were fully dependent on funding from banks that were mostly banks from Scandinavia. And after the 2008 crisis, instead of money flowing into the region, money started flowing out of the region. So these banks were trying to get the money back because they had enough problems at home. But what you had in those countries is you had... Complete capital flight, and if you need if you wanted to continue to run your business, you really had to learn how to get your money back, how to be capital efficient. You did not for a long period there was no outside money coming into those markets at all, and there's no better way to learn how to run a business when you really have to make money.
0: Yeah. <laughs> More profound words about a business were never spoken. I mean having to make money will certainly uh, change your life if you're not used to doing it. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how you've handled the war situation. I mean, I I can't imagine, you know, you working like seven days a week, uh, 20 hours a day since the start of the war, or um, how have you handled that? Have you pulled lots of money out of Eastern Europe? Uh, So we have to separate, I guess,
1: answering that question into a few pieces. In terms of, so before the war and after the war, and what are we doing in Russia versus what are we doing in other places? As far as before the war, we spent a lot of time analyzing incentives, analyzing the information, analyzing the situation, and we ended up being completely wrong. We did not think that there was enough reasons for Russia to be invading Ukraine, primarily because of the type of outcome that we're seeing right now. It's a mess. The country, no matter what Russia would be saying internally that they call it special operations, the war, it's not going well. They've lost a lot of people. They have not made the gains that they expected to get. They became international pariahs. So this is not, has not been a successful event for Russia. And it was we thought that the likelihood of this not being a successful event, at least in the short term, was very high, which would prevent them from making that step, from taking the step to go to war. Obviously, we were wrong about that. Most other people felt the same way. I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but it is what it is. In terms of what is happening right now, as far as Russia is concerned, um, most of our time there is we are spending trying to figure out the rules that are changing on a daily basis. Um, There's different uh, things that are happening from the point of view of what the US investors allow it to do. From U.S. point of view and from a Russian point of view, because there's different regulators that are putting in different rules. So, for example, as of today, no foreign investor, you it doesn't matter where you're from, but no foreign investor in a stock market is allowed to take any money out of Russia. So even if you could sell your stocks, even if you wanted to sell your stocks, you couldn't get the money. At the same time, according to the most recent sanctions and clarifications from the United States, a U.S. person should not be buying anything in Russia at all. It's independent of whether the stock is uh, sanctioned. One of the biggest companies in that market before was Bear Bank, which I'm, I'm guessing at least some of your listeners have heard of before. It really, really was a truly world-class, phenomenal company that at this point is uninvestable because it's on a sanction list in the United States. So you have, we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out the rules. Uh, They are changing, there's clarifications on a daily basis. And we're trying to figure out how to hold on to the positions that we had before in a way that we do feel that at some point the situation will resolve. And at some point, hopefully within our lifetime, Russia will become investable again and the companies that we have and uh, we are trying to hold on to are going to be doing well once again, and that's that's what we're doing in Russia. As far as other markets in Eastern Europe, that's where it gets really interesting because you had this reaction of a correction of an increased risk in Baltic countries that I mentioned before, in Poland. In the country of Georgia, in the country of Kazakhstan, the valuations have come down from already pretty low levels before the war, to be honest. But I would argue that those countries have become safer and better investment destinations since the war than they were before. In part because, in part, so if we look at Eastern European countries that are within NATO, so the Baltics and the Poland and Romania... NATO is a stronger organization today than it was in January. And Russia is weaker today than it was in January. So the potential threat that you may have had of Russia invading those places at some point has come down. Meanwhile, those countries are continuing to do well, and they're really robust economies that have been growing, that have a strong history of growth. There is a history of conversion to the general European level. And when Europe is growing... Zero, one percent, the countries that I'm mentioning usually growing three, four, five. And the valuations that we're seeing there are very low. So what we're looking at is we're looking at companies, really high quality companies that are operating on the European level that are trading at a PE of five, six. This is the type of numbers that we're dealing with.
0: And growing. Well, a PE of five or six and growing. Um, you don't see that a lot. So you sound like your firm is putting money to work there now. We are, absolutely. So the
1: countries so outside of Russia, uh, we are putting more money to work, uh, some high-quality businesses um, that are there in places like Kazakhstan. We have uh, you know, one of our positions is the biggest bank in Kazakhstan called Halik that is trading at something like 4P and uh, has become more dominant because about 15% of the Kazakh banking system was represented by Russian banks that had to pull out. This bank went from about 40% market share to something like 45 or 50. It was already big, but got bigger. And uh, we have, uh, there's a Romanian oil and gas company uh, that is majority owned by um, Austrian company OMV called OMV Petrom. This company is, uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on there uh, but one of the things they have uh, established a new dividend policy uh, at the begin, at the end of last year, and um, they in um, I think in March or April they declared their regular dividend, uh, which is about a seven percent yield to current price, and just a few days ago they declared an extraordinary dividend that is based on their uh, new dividend policy that is another 10 percent to the current price and this is i mean based on our estimates this is just the money that they made in the first half of the year
0: that's okay i hope you don't mind me jumping around a little but one of the things that i wanted to ask you about was the extreme volatility of the russian ruble has been well it's been talked about in the news a lot lately but i suppose if you have um you know capital that's kind of trapped in the country I don't know, is it less of a concern or more of a concern, or or is this something you guys talk about a lot?
1: Well, capital that is trapped in the country is really the reason for the volatility that you're seeing. What you have right now uh, with the Russian ruble is that you have very few parties from the outside that are able to sell rubles. You have very strong exports because of the high prices of the commodities, oil, gas fertilizers, you name it, whatever they can still sell. And the imports fell dramatically because of the self-sanctioning. Some of it is self-sanctioning and some of it is real sanctioning. So you have a trade balance, extremely positive trade balance. You have very few natural sellers, a lot of natural buyers. So you see the prices, uh, price in ruble that you see. It doesn't mean that it's available to you or me
0: to sell rubles if we had it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i wonder how, how do you short rubles when you're not when you have no access to them i guess is the question maybe you just don't so uh steve let's you know you're two you're two things right you're you're the guy who's managing money in eastern europe and russia um but you also run this value fund a u.s value fund right for for firebird yep how long have you been doing that? And it had to have been very difficult until about the past, you know, six or months or so, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we—I've uh, been doing it for about nine years. Uh, the genesis of that fund is taking the fund, our fundamental investment approach that I already mentioned, where we look at, we really try to understand the company's competitive advantages and how they allocate capital, and applying it to a different market. And back in 2012. Uh, when the US fund strategy was launched, we uh, decided to take a look at uh, what is going on in other markets. We didn't feel comfortable going to other emerging markets. We're all, uh, our firm is in New York, we're all US citizens, so we figured let's try, and we've been investing domestically, personally, pretty much our whole life. So we wanted to apply uh, our investment approach a little more systematically, and just to see what kind of portfolio we can build. And when I saw that I can buy companies like within within the framework that we established, there were companies like Microsoft and Apple, a couple of insurance companies uh, like Assurant that looked like really tremendous high quality businesses that over, over the cycle would be able to generate very strong returns for you as an investor. We felt that this was an idea worth trying. And over time, uh, we built it into a product. That is very much focused on long term returns to shareholders. Uh, We don't have a portfolio that would be difficult for a hedge fund uh, because we're kind of looking at it more from a long term. And yes, it's been, you know, some years have been easier, some years have been worse, but I'm looking at the portfolio today and uh, I'm very excited about what next five, 10 years would bring, and I have no idea what the next six months ago.
0: Fair enough. Yeah, who does? You know, most people didn't have any idea at the beginning of this year where we'd be right now, right? Um, we all would, have, we all might have behaved differently if we could see that clearly. So, as you, um, you know, assess. Um, uh, by the way, I, I want our listeners to know when you were talking initially, and you said you look at how companies make money and how they spend money, that is, for an individual investor, that's really powerful. It's something that you and I might take for granted, but I think a lot of people, they spend way too much time thinking about how a business makes money and not enough about how it spends money, and they may, may not even know how to assess that. And to me, that's that's an important thing. That's a really important thing. We spend actually quite a bit of time um, looking at that because we think it tells us something about the management, you know, without having to like interview them or know them personally or something, which is its own set of problems. So I wonder if you could talk about, um, you know, just the ways companies spend money, capital allocation, expenses and so forth, and, and, you know, just give us a little flavor of your framework and how you think about those items.
1: Absolutely. And thank, thank you for that question because it is an important one. So, If we're talking about how companies spend money, obviously the first way that you want your company to allocate in the type of businesses that we buy is they usually have high returns on invested capital. If you need to build a new factory to produce widgets that people are buying from you at higher prices because there's a brand, you want them to spend money on that. And that's kind of the easier part of the analysis because companies know how to do that very any company that's worth its salt will know how to do that very well but the best businesses will generate a lot more money that they need just to grow their business organically so then the question is what do you do with that cash and then some businesses will be making using it to make acquisitions so then with those, I try to analyze what kind of returns are they getting on those acquisitions. And you can take a look at things like if you take a look at acquisitions historically for a company that does a lot of acquisitions, you can see what has been the impact over acquisition or serious acquisitions on revenues and profitability and really look at the returns that they have gotten over time. And if you have management that's been there for 10, 15 years, so this is really a lot of companies that we look for. We try to see that that track record. If they are spending money on acquisitions, we want to see how they did over time. And then when the next acquisition gets announced, we have a little bit of a background to be able to say, okay, chances are it's going to be good, or chances are it's not going to be. Good. But the other thing, and I think it's really over, there's a lot of debate over this, is that we look for a lot of the companies in our portfolio do quite a bit of buyback, and we feel very comfortable with that because. Chances are, if this company is, is in our portfolio, it is already trading at a free cash flow yield, somewhere in high single digits, maybe even double digits. So if you have a business that is generating that much free cash flow yield and it's trading at that price, then for you, for that business to buy back shares, I believe is value accretive because you are deploying cash at that 10% interest rate, at a 10% free cash flow rate or eight or sometimes 20. And that to me, is a good capital allocation decision that is often overlooked by the market. And that's something that delivers value not within the next three months, but will deliver value for you, for, for me as an investor. It delivers value over the next two to three years because, and Buffett talked about talk, talks about it quite often, where if initially you owned 1% of the company, but as a result of buybacks, you have owned 1.5% of the company, well, it's 50% more. You didn't have to do anything, right? So that, that's that's a thing that uh, we find adds quite a bit of performance for high-quality businesses over time. Uh, sometimes you get in this coiled spring effect where company may buy twenty or thirty percent of its shares outstanding over, over four or five years and doesn't go anywhere, and then all of a sudden their earnings per share explodes and the market reacts to it. And we feel comfortable waiting for it. We have amazing investors that clearly understand what we're doing and why, and uh, we're blessed for that. So and our, while our strategy is very consistent, and we communicate
0: this on a quarterly basis, and it works. I'm glad you mentioned share repurchases. This is something I look at and comment on and analyze every single month, every single time we find a new business to, to write about in our newsletter. And what I've noticed is that most companies, He's like the overwhelming majority of them are so bad at it. I mean, they simply they buy the stock when they have the money, and they have the money at the top of you know the cycle or whatever. And they so they buy more when it's most expensive, and they buy little or none when it's most attractive. So at least for our listeners' uh, point of view, and maybe to provoke a comment from you, Steve, too. I just wanted to get it out there that what you describe is not the usual state of affairs, is it? And what Buffett describes, his favorite example, of course, is Apple. That's, what he's, that's the one he's kind of been going on about with this. But they're not all Apple, are they? Or they're not all the, the type of companies you're describing, are they? Well,
1: I would actually argue, so Apple is a great example, because this is a company that we used to have in a portfolio, but we don't anymore. And not to disagree with, with Buffett, who is obviously a much better investor than I ever hope to be. But when we were buying Apple and owned Apple, and when Apple was spending all of its Mm -hmm. money on buybacks, we owned it when it was trading at an 8% free cash flow yield. At that point, the buyback makes sense to me. Today, so when we sold it, Apple was trading at a free cash flow yield of around 2%. Still a good business. But at that point, to me, if you're deploying all of the cash into buybacks at that rate, it's just not as attractive. And we found a different business that we thought that was doing a better job, right? right. So today, uh, uh, Apple, uh. I think the free cash flow yield is somewhere around in between, like it's around 4%. Okay, it's a little different. Maybe it's attractive, still high quality business. But the reason why we sold Apple, rightly or wrongly, is because we felt that their capital
0: allocation was no longer as efficient as we wanted it to be. Right, okay. So you, you've actually you um, you broached a couple of topics here that kind of come together for me. And one is, you know, we, we, you mentioned Buffett, you know, and, and his, of course, we all know he loves to hold stock forever. He loves to buy great businesses and hold on to them forever. And you also mentioned that you sold Apple, which we all know to be quite a high quality business. And to me, it, it, this is an interesting topic, and the topic is simply a, a very high-quality business, a wonderful business, the kind that Warren Buffett would say he wants to hold forever. I find them much more difficult to hold forever. I find that there are points when even the most wonderful business in the world trades at a price that, as you've pointed out, it actually changes the fundamentals of how they're allocating capital internally, and it warrants you know, selling it. And even just holding on to the cash and looking for something better, even if you don't have something better right away. To me, this is uh, this has been a revelation, this idea that even a very high quality business should sometimes be avoided or sold. You know, we, we can't all be Warren Buffett. You know?
1: there, there's, a, there's a lot of things that go into that question, and I absolutely agree with you that it's uh, sometimes businesses get too expensive, no matter how uh, how high quality of the business it is. For individual investors and you know, for fund investors, so a lot of the money within our fund is our own money. So we do kind of think about tax implications. You have to remember that anything that you sell, especially if you sold it at a profit, there's a tax associated with it. If you're a U.S. citizen, sometimes it's short-term gain, sometimes it's long-term gain. So when you're thinking about reinvesting opportunity, you have to be thinking from a point of view of after tax. So from that point of view, the burden, like the price at which you're selling is not necessarily the price at which you're selling there, but realistically, it could be 15, could be 30% less depending on your cash rate. So does it still make sense to sell? So that's one of the things that we're considering. But from the point of view of like sometimes a decision to sell for us, it's it consists of two parts. One is the company that we're selling and the opportunity, co- uh, which is the opportunity cost, but also the company that we're trying to buy. We run a disciplined portfolio of no more than 30 companies. So sometimes when there's a new tremendous idea that we want to put into the portfolio, more often than not, we have to sell something. We usually run the portfolio more or less fully invested because I feel that, our investors have given us that the money that they want to have invested into the U.S. market with this portfolio. Or in Eastern Europe is the money that they want to have invested in the Eastern European market. If I, as a fund manager, then make a decision that I want to be 50% cash because I don't feel comfortable, I'm not doing what my investors want me to do because they make the capital allocation decision, not I. So we run fully invested. But a company like – so once again, going back to the example of Apple – one of the reasons why we were selling it is because I saw that it went from when we were buying it, it was trading on free cash flow yield about two standard deviations lower than the historical average. So we know that happens, you know, according to statistics, that happens about two and a half percent of the time. So quite unusual, good price to buy. When we sold it, it was trading at two standard deviations above historical average, So then are you making, are you comfortable making the bet that we are going to be, to continue that you're going to be operating within an environment that happens 2% of the time, or you believe in some kind of reversion to the environment that is 98% of the time? And I had an argument with one of our investors over this, and I actually lost an investor over this, where they were asking a question, you know, why did you sell Apple? And I went through this. They said, well, it kept going up. Like I get it, but then I'm making a very low probability decision from my point of view that I don't feel comfortable making. So that's one of the things that we would look at is that if the company is, from a historical perspective, looking very expensive, if the fundamental business didn't change that much, then we feel more comfortable selling. We could be wrong about this. So if the fundamental business has changed, that the company is supposed to be trading at a different multiple because it entered a different growth stage or because its uh, cash flow generation uh, capabilities have changed, well, that's something that hopefully we can analyze and act on it. But otherwise, more often than not, businesses still operate within an
0: environment that they did before. Steve, you, you gave us um, some very specific ideas of companies, um, businesses in in Kazakhstan and Austria and, and countries like Poland and the Balkans where things are cheap and high quality. Are you guys, you know, with markets officially in a bear market, as they say in the US, are you finding compelling ideas at this point in the US?
1: There, there's quite a bit. And um, in terms of the ideas and uh, kind of the funnel, Most of last year, I've spent probably looking at companies and uh, trying to find companies that may seem interesting. But then once you start digging, it was really difficult to find any new ideas. And we spent, I don't think we put in any new companies into the portfolio in the second half of last year. Uh, We've put in a few new ideas in the portfolio this year, uh, but one of the ones that comes to mind right now that we had in the portfolio for, for quite some time, but I think is a little bit misunderstood. Um, is this company is operating in the credit card uh, sector. And one of the companies that we like within there is Synchrony Financial Company with its accuracy, S-Y-F. And uh, so this is a credit card company, and obviously we don't know what's going to be happening to uh, the consumer going forward. But one of the things that... uh, But a few reasons why I think that credit card companies will do well is that, so first of all, They've been doing this for a long time. They've been doing this through the cycle. So the companies that we own, like Synchrony and Discover, they've been going through a number of cycles, a number of, of economic cycles. So it's highly unlikely that they're going to be surprised by what's happening. Their uh, balance sheets are as strong as ever. Since the 2008 crisis, Fed w- has been doing everything in their power to make sure that the banking system is as robust as it is. The... Capital balances, the capital adequacy, ra- adequacy ratios have for pretty much any bank that you look in within the United States have gone up dramatically. In Eastern Europe as well. Uh, so these are the banks with very robust balances. As interest rates go up, historically, what you had is you had expansion in that interest margin, even for credit card companies where you are starting from pretty high uh, interest rates to start with. So they have their interest mar- um, interest margins go up, their default rates will probably go up as well. But if you take a look at a company like Synchrony, they've always been provisioning oh, for the last 10 years, they've been provisioning a lot more than they have been writing up. So there's a lot of slack within, uh, a lot of cushion within how they handle their finances over the last few years to allow for the higher default rate that will probably be seen. But another thing that was really interesting that happened last year is that you had Synchrony that was kind of hurt by the market because people had too much money. Because of the stimulus, what you had is you had volumes. uh, You could see they report the volumes of purchasing that's going through their cards. And relative to the loan balances, the loan balances were pretty low because people had that extra money from government surpluses. They had extra money uh, because they maybe didn't spend the money on travel that they would have otherwise and they pay down their credit card balances. We're seeing the opposite right now. So we're seeing a pretty strong growth in the account balances for Synchrony, which for that business is good. So you have a situation with higher net interest margins, higher balances, and this is a company, so which should lead to higher profitability, obviously all depending on the provisioning, but I don't think we're going to see large surprises in provisioning because of uh, because of the cushion that I mentioned. But this is the company... That is has been spending all of its money, all of its free cash flow on buybacks, and since 2016, so we're talking five years, their amount of shares outstanding is down like 30%, and they're continuing to buyback. And we and this is a company that's today trading at double-digit free cash flow yield. Depending you you have to make a few adjustments because if you just look at the cash flow statement, they put back the provisioning, which has, I don't think the right thing to do because you know pro- the losses on the credit cards is kind of part of, it's the operating cost for them. But even if you adjust for that, this is still a company that's trading at a very healthy free cash flow
0: yield, has a very robust business and is a very good capital allocation. Okay, so we've gotten someplace that I always get, especially with value investors. <laughs> there are, most people I think would say there are such obvious headwinds macro headwinds right interest rates are going up and and you know that'll impact the consumer and and you mentioned you know the consumer you don't know what's going to happen with them but i think i don't know maybe you disagree but i would think like um there are these a a few sort of what howard Marks might call first level sort of obvious objections to this that are probably very compelling for a lot of folks and i would imagine like even you said you expect the higher default rates So a simple question might be, well, why not wait for that to materialize until start buying the stock?
1: That's a great question. And uh, I think so with I have to uh, premise this by saying that I am not a market timer. I'm not very good at market timing. And once again, over time, we found that. getting into the situations maybe a little bit early, it gives us an opportunity to uh, see how the companies make uh, what kind of decisions that the companies make. And if we are correct on the underlying drivers of the businesses, being early does not mean being late. Because over time, as these companies report earnings over the next quarter or next two quarters, this concern may prove to be not as much of a concern as it was. But also, what I, th- if I'm proven correct with companies like this, why I am buying at the same time when Synchrony is buying shares and I believe is getting a very good deal on their shares. So I kind of feel like I want to do the same thing. And if I'm right, it really doesn't matter if I bought before this uh, inflection point that you're talking about. Or if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong, and uh, time time will tell. But more often than not, what we've seen is that the first order effects that you mentioned, chances are they are in the price. Because market, for all its faults, is a waiting machine of the things that we know, the known unknowns, right? It's the unknown unknowns that will mess you up. So... I was talking to one of our one of our investors, is um, the investor in the fixed income field, and um, he was saying that he was giving an example of uh, the treasury rate, the interest rates that we see in on treasuries. He's saying this is the most probably the most efficient instrument out there because you have literally millions of people betting on it on both sides, and there's only one instrument. So if you want to buy two-year treasuries or 10-year treasuries, there's only one. You don't have 5,000 different companies that you can invest in. So the market attends, so anybody who is trading the US treasuries, they will probably be buying or selling based on their opinion on what's going to be happening later on. And the, you know, overall, you get to the wisdom of the crowds within the price of the interest rate, within the interest rate that you see in the treasuries. And yes, it may go up and it may go down. And then you look back and say, oh, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. But what you knew was in (laughs) the price because somebody else knew something else. And when we're talking about these uh, kind of potential problems that the market is seeing in the consumer space or in the housing space, those are first order effects that everybody knows. It's what happens after that or the severity of it, that is going to surprise to the upside or the down.
0: All right. So then I wind up at a question again. I wind up asking, do, how much time does anybody, you or anybody at your firm, spend analyzing macro data and thinking about macro issues?
1: we still do a lot of things in eastern europe and majority of assets is in eastern europe even after what happened this year uh, we spent quite a bit of time thinking about macroeconomics but really more on a global scale um than mm-hmm. um than other value investors would at least that that's what we think it's an input in our investment analysis so we will sometimes uh, so when we on eastern european side when we're entering when we're looking to invest into a country We, if we don't think that the country has the right macroeconomics, we just don't look at it. So one example within our region is Turkey, which has a number of extremely high quality companies, tremendous businessmen. But we feel very uncomfortable with the macroeconomics there. We just don't understand uh, what's going to happen and how you resolve that situation. So we just don't touch it. Uh, so, from that point of view, macroeconomics is, uh, is a big piece of what we're doing. Or back in 2014, when oil prices were at the low because there was a concern about what you know, whether China is going to continue to be buying, uh, to be the same consumer of oil and gas than it was before, we went to China. And we wanted to just to see what's going on. And and uh, one of the surprises for us was that how cold it was in China and kind of realizing that we went, we went in February and uh, most places didn't have central heating. And we kind of realized that, OK, as far as what's going to happen to oil, I'm not sure, but gas, they'll need more gas because you have... This, you have the process of conversions. People are getting wealthier over there. You had hundreds of millions of people moving into the cities. They just have a different intensity, energy intensity use when you have middle class as opposed to lower middle class, lower mm-hmm. or okay people that live below the poverty line. So it's not a tremendous mm-hmm. insight, but we do look at things like that. Um, and you have to be aware of macroeconomics.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. There's nothing like boots on the ground to change your perspective, especially when you're investing in another country, another culture.
1: No, you know this feeling when you're reading a newspaper or a magazine and you get an article on a topic that you know a lot about and you're like, oh, they're so wrong. But then any other other article within that uh, newspaper or magazine, like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So it's just this, once again, first order effects where whatever we're reading Chances are that
0: is in the market. It's kind of going a little bit further and trying to analyze it. Right. And chances are, if it's in the you know, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, they're not going to China every week or Eastern Europe every week. So you know, even if they may have, it's a little different. But I've come to um, my final question, which I'm very curious to ask you since you've never been on the show before. It's the same final question for every guest, no matter what the topic is. And the final question is simply, if you could leave our listeners today with a single thought, what would it be? It's a, it's a really good
1: question. And I knew you were going to ask it. So I had to think about it a, a bit. Okay. <laughs> and I think what the thought that I would have would be capacity to suffer. It's the ability to do things that are hard to do, whether in investing or in Life. It really doesn't matter. But you have to be able to do hard things. Um, I looked, it was a big surprise to me. So I looked at the returns of the S&P 500 since 1924 or whatever it is. And I plotted them on the scatter plot. And you have this random walk. Sometimes it's 30% up, sometimes it's 20% down. Like it does not look linear at all. But since 1924, if you were invested in the U.S. stock market, and I think anybody who is in the U.S. should be invested at least somewhat into the U.S. stock market, independent of whether you think it's expensive or cheap, you made 8% per year, which is a very good return over that time. And obviously, if you held mm-hmm. since 1924, you compounded thousands, of not tens of thousands of percent. Yeah. But the number of people yeah. that are able to hold through a year like 2022, when we're down 20% and could be down another 30 And then be afraid to get back into the market when things are bottomed out. And you only know in hindsight when they've bottomed out. It's the capacity to suffer. It's the capacity to take a loss and not be afraid of what's happening. It's the capacity of being able to do the hard thing and get rewarded for it because other people won't. And that's going to be your competitive advantage, both in investing. And I tell my kids, I have three kids. That's what I tell them in life. Like, if it's easy, everybody's going to do it.
0: If it's hard, that's where you kind of build your own. Well said and very timely, I might add, very timely. Um, well, thanks for being here, Steve. Um, I'll tell you what, how about if we don't wait uh, you know, a long time to get you back on the show since I waited so long to get you on it in the first place? <laughs> this was a, it was a
1: pleasure. Thank you so much for great questions.
0: Well, I'm glad that I finally got Steve on the show. I've seen him every year for something like 10 or 12 years. And he always gives really great detailed presentations. Um, sometimes he comes up with these really kind of obscure seeming stocks because he does cover uh, Eastern Europe and Russia. And and he comes up with a lot of great ideas actually over the years. Um, and just a very smart guy. I mean, that whole conference that we go to, in it's a room full of people, all of whom are smarter than me uh, and, and have a lot of experience. And most of them allocate capital for a living. Um, but I, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Steve had a lot of specific ideas for us. I thought it was really fascinating the idea that, well, Russia is getting weaker and Poland and the Balkans are getting stronger. And there's a lot of high quality companies there that you can buy now that are really cheap. That really appealed to me. That's going to make me uh, you know, run off and try to do some homework on it right away. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, as we say very often on the show. All right. And I hope you'll enjoy the mailbag today. Let's go do that right now. I think you know by now I'm always trying to tell you the really hard truths, even when, especially when, what I have to say is unpopular. Today, the hard truth is that your wealth is in danger. Everything you may have made in the bull market of the last decade could disappear very quickly. Some of it's probably gone already. This process has already started. And even if the financial markets somehow avoid a devastating crash from here, inflation is still eating 8% of your money every year. I've spent 20 years helping people prepare for extreme market shifts, just like the one we're going through right now in my role at Stansbury Research. I've recommended 24 triple-digit winners, and I called the collapse of Lehman Brothers with near-perfect timing. Well, today, I'm issuing my biggest warning ever. If you want to preserve your retirement and your lifestyle in the coming years, you need to act. I recently went on camera to lay out a simple one-step plan for what to do. You can set yourself up in minutes and likely forget about inflation, rising prices, or the worst effects of a market crash for years to come. This plan does not involve options, shorting, crypto, or anything complicated, and it doesn't require perfect timing. The perfect time to act is right now, and you could see triple-digit upside in the coming years. To watch my full interview with the brilliant financial journalist and hard asset expert Daniela Cambone, simply go to www.crashprotection2022.com. Again, that's www.crashprotection2022.com to watch our full interview for free. In the mailbag each week, you and I have an honest conversation about investing or whatever is on your mind. Send questions, comments, and politely worded criticisms to feedback at InvestorHour.com. I read as many emails as time allows, and I respond to as many as possible. You can also call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. First up this week is Anthony H., and he says, Dan, I believe it was last November Rick Rule was on talking about how markets work. One forecast he made was that silver would be much higher in six months. A little over six months later, silver is down to around $20.80 compared to 23 at that time. Is the price of silver mostly driven by inflation hedge and store of value investing? Or is it from industrial use? Curious why silver has not panned out. Thanks, Extreme Value member Anthony H. Um, Anthony, I won't speak for Rick, but for myself, um, I've talked about silver before. Two important things about silver. Well, actually, let's go there. Let's go to three. And the first one is that it's really difficult to think about silver versus gold because silver has plenty of industrial use. As you implied in your question, you imply that you understand this. There's plenty of industrial use, but there's also this uh, monetary or store of value demand as well. And so the, the monetary value tends to be on the margins. The other part of that is really difficult. Still silver is hard because most silver is mined as a byproduct of other things. You know, you get these, um, silver lead deposits and even gold silver and some other things. So a lot of it gets mined, um, as a result of mining other metals so the other metal fundamentals come into play at silver it just makes it really complicated so that's that's number one number two is silver tends to rise when gold rises quite a bit silver tends to follow not lead it tends to lag not lead and the third thing is and this is just my personal insight from information that i've looked at just on long-term charts Silver is really spiky. You know, if you get a long-term chart of silver, um, it, it tends to have these really speculative spikes. It, I call it the meme stock of metals for that reason. And, and my strategy is going to be to hang on to it and maybe sell, maybe I'll sell silver equities into the spike because I'm holding silver equities. Uh, and, but I'll probably hang on to my metal Right, I've said that before the show. I've sold gold medal before. I've never sold my silver medal, but it felt bad, man. It felt bad not having it. I did, you know, I I did what I did at a good time, but mm, it it just ugh, I don't want to ha- not have my medal. So I probably won't sell my silver medal. If I do, I'll wait for one of those big spikes. And so you know, like a six month time frame, like Rick Rick was talking about, that doesn't mean anything to me personally um he's much more in tune with those metal markets than I am so he can make that kind of a call. and you know, it didn't turn out this time but um, you know, he, he's got a great track record investing in in metals. so overall, yeah um, he's brilliant. this one didn't pan out. but for me, I don't care about that. I just think that it's a good time to own precious metals, great time to own gold and therefore probably a great time, not probably, I think definitely a great time to own silver as well, as long as you keep in mind that it's really spiky. you don't get the same kind of trending with silver that you do with gold and that it tends to rise after gold tends to lag gold. Keep those things in mind that's that's my advice um, you know as to why it didn't pan out. I don't know, you know, a six or eight month call doesn't mean anything to me, so I can't tell you why it didn't pan out. but it's a good question. Okay. I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping for the extreme value newsletter. Forgive me if you're not a subscriber. Mike C wrote in and he said, Hey Dan, why don't you report the trailing stops like right on the back page so I can see them and use them. You're right, Mike. We're going to take care of that. Thank you for writing in next and last this week is Lodovic H Lodovic H writes in frequently. He's our frequent correspondent, faithful listener. Um, and one of his emails this week, and there are always more than one each week, he says, your guest, and he's referring to Steve Gorlick last week. He says, your guest is spot on. I'm negotiating to open small supermarkets in Russia in two airports, selling coffee in a place where people are not price sensitive. Sounds like a good investment, but it is in the early stages. Um, he says, worst case, I'll just buy additional precious metals, <laughs> Lodovic H., <laughs> Well, Ludovic, I don't know anything about um, supermarkets in Russian airports, but it sounds interesting, and I wish you all the best with it. And, of course, the latter part, buy additional precious metals. Hey, why wait? I, I say do it now. So that's another mailbag, and that's another episode of the Stansbury Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to www.investorhour.com, click on the episode you want, scroll all the way down, click on the word transcript and enjoy. If you like this episode and know anybody who might like it also, tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at InvestorHour.com. And do me a favor, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at Investor Hour. On Twitter, our handle is at Investor underscore Hour. If you have a guest you want me to interview, drop me a note, feedback at InvestorHour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive
2: notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email, feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network. Opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the contributor and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Stansberry Research, its parent company, or affiliates. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this program as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of opinion. Neither Stansberry Research nor its parent company or affiliates warrant the completeness or accuracy of the information expressed on this program, and it should not be relied upon as such. Standard Research, its affiliates and subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on the program. The statements and opinions expressed on this program are subject to change without notice. No part of the contributor's compensation from Standard Research is related to the specific opinions they express. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Standard Research does not guarantee any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this program. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this program may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as a recommendation that is appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this program. Before acting on information on the program, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor.